0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so with that said, we are uh, moving into Matthew chapter 28. And uh, let me just preface by saying that we are in a set of sermons called The Bride. It's a set of sermons on the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do a set of sermons like this on the church is because there's so much fuzzy thinking about the church in our culture. And so uh, the first week that we kind of dove into this set of sermons, we tried to define what is a local church. I'm going to put that definition back up on the screen for you. Here was the definition that we laid out that first week. The local church, and I think this is just a good summary of the book of Acts. The local church is a community of regenerated believers So believers who have put their faith in Jesus, regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, in obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. They gather on a regular basis for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion and are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and then a church scatters to fulfill the great commandment, which is what we worked on last week, to love. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take another step in our set of sermons, and I just want us to wrestle through and really just begin to think through this morning. What does it look like for a church not only to gather in a room like this and hear preaching and worship and do this thing together? What does it look like for us to scatter in all the places and spaces you do your life? What does it look like for us to scatter and fulfill the Great Commission? to scatter and to go about being on the mission of Jesus together. That's what I wanted to work through with you this morning. And just as you're thinking about Matthew 28, I think it's good to make sure we're seeing the Bible as a whole before we even zoom into Matthew 28. And when you think about the Bible as as an entirety, as a whole book, one of the things that you'll notice if you just begin to read it from Genesis to Revelation is that the Bible is a book about the mission of God. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible really unfolds for us and reveals to us a missionary God, a God whose heart just bubbles forth with this missionary zeal to bring people into his sort of triune, Trinitarian love. This is what the Bible shows us about God. So when you see the Bible and you read the Bible, what you're, what you're seeing and what you're, what you're seeing revealed to you is a God who, in response to our wickedness and sin, doesn't leave us there but moves toward us, comes after us, always takes the first step, as Ephesians 1 says, to reconcile all things to himself. That is what God is up to. This is what the Bible reveals to us is a God doing that. From Genesis to Revelation, this is what the Bible is about. You see that probably most clearly in the climatic moment in the scriptures and really in history when God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus. And John, he talks about it like this. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took on human flesh, sent by God the Father. He lived perfectly in our, in our place. In response to our sin and rebellion, he doesn't like return punch for, for punch. But, but he, he gives his very life to us on the cross receiving the punishment that our sin deserved. He, he died, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, opening up a way now for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to God. That, that, that is the clearest sort of portrayal in the Bible of the missionary heart of God. I, I love how we sometimes summarize the gospel in just a couple of simple phrases. And we say it like this, we're all idiots. That's the humbling part, right? Right? we're all idiots we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus and anyone can get in on this that is what Jesus died to accomplish that the missionary heart of God sent God the son to make that available to us that we're all idiots we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus and anyone can get in on this but but here's what the scriptures make plain part of what it means to be in on this is yes Jesus has pardoned our sin That is part of what it means to be a son or daughter of God. That God is now through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has pardoned our sin. But that is not all that Jesus has done for us. He didn't just pardon our sin. He has also transferred to us and given us a mission to live on. So so there's a both-in thing. Yes, we receive the pardon of God, and yes, as a follower of Jesus, we receive the mission of God. So so Jesus didn't just die to give us a family to live with, but a mission to live on. Or we might think of it this way. The the missionary God of the Bible, he saves us. That's the pardon that we receive in Jesus. But he also sends us as a missionary people. That's the purpose that Jesus has given us. He saves and he sends. Now, part of where we get to see this sending heart of God, like missionary God saves us and then he sends us is in Matthew 28. It's probably the clearest place in the Bible to see the purpose that Jesus has transferred into our life and given and bestowed upon our life. And, And here it is in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. There are certain phrases that I am so grateful for that they're in the Bible because it just gives so much hope to me, you know? And this is one of those, that, that last phrase. They are looking at the resurrected Jesus, right? And their cynical hearts are looking at the resurrected, and they're just like, there's no way I can believe that. There's no way that's the Jesus who died. There's no way he's back to life. Some doubted. And then comes in verse 18, some of Jesus' last words to his faint-hearted disciples, his weary, fearful disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a sweeping claim. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples. Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you want to clarify and just see the mission that God has given the church in just very clear language, you find it right here in this passage. The mission that God has given the church is to make disciples. And I'm grateful Jesus didn't just leave this up for a lot of debate. He didn't just leave us and say, hey, why don't y'all go figure out what I want y'all to be about as a church? He didn't do that. He made it very clear here, this is what I want you to be about. I want you to be about the the work of making disciples. When you look at this passage, it's an interesting passage in English because some things don't come out quite as clearly. So in in the Greek, it's very clear that there is one imperative, there's one command. And the command is make disciples. Everything else in this passage is supporting that command. Go, baptize, teach, All, all of those are the supports. But the main idea is, Be about the work of making disciples. Church, this is is what Jesus has called us to be about as a church family that that we are to be a people and a place that is making disciples. Now, back in June, Ryan did a really great job of defining what a disciple is. And this is the, the definition he gave of a disciple it's a person becoming more like Jesus in every area of their life by the power of the Spirit. I think that's a great definition of a disciple. A disciple is a person becoming more like Jesus in every area of their life by the power of the Spirit. That is what Jesus is doing in the world. This is what God is up to right now in the world, doing that right there. And this is what he has invited us into, to co-labor with him to make disciples, to help people become more like Jesus in every area of their life by the power of the Spirit. So here's what I wanna do today. I want to take this passage and apply it in two different ways. I want to ask the question, what what would it look like for us personally to live in this passage? What what would that look like for you and I to seek to, to conform our life into this? And then on the other side, I want us to think about that as a church. What would it look like for us as a church to say yes to that corporately? Not just a one of us, but all of us together. What would it look like for us to live in this? And for us to conform to this? So we'll start with the personal side of this. The great commission in my life. The great commission in my life. Now think about how does this, how does this apply to me personally? And maybe, so let me start by giving you a moment to just ask yourself the question. Jesus is very clearly saying, not just to a church, but to people Go and make disciples, make disciples. How, how, how are you doing with that? Like when you look at your life, is that something that's happening here? Is that something that you see going on? When you think about what a healthy Christian is, I think it's really important for us to all get a glimpse of this passage, that one sign of a healthy follower of Jesus is that we're reproducing or multiplying ourselves in the kingdom of God. That is one sign of health spiritually, is that we're multiplying or reproducing ourselves. Now, on the other side, just take the negative of that. If we're not reproducing or multiplying ourselves, that is showing us that there's something off in our walk with the Lord. Like like we're just degrees off of what it is that he would want our life to be about, where he would want the investment in our life. So just ask yourself the question, how, how am I doing in that? Is my life right now about the work of making disciples? That doesn't matter if you're on a church staff somewhere or if you're on a, you know, doing a job somewhere in the world in this area. It applies to all of us. Are we making disciples? Now, there's three phrases, three participles that this passage has that help give clarity to the how of that. Like, like, What does it look like to go about making disciples? And let me just run through these really quickly. You see the first one when, when he says, here's how I want you to do that. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the first kind of step of, of disciple making, b- baptizing. Now that baptizing is, is, is helping us see the outward sort of personal evangelistic component of disciple making. It's, it's working us into and helping us see that the first part of disciple making as a follower of Jesus is to begin praying for people who don't follow Jesus, to open up our lives and our heart to people, to, to befriend people who are far from Jesus, and then to open up our mouth and to talk about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. This is what he's alluding to here. When he's talking about baptism, this is what he is talking about. He is pointing to the moments of conversion in a person's life. He is saying, this is part of what it means to make a disciple. The first part is, people have to meet me. This is where disciple making starts. People who are far from me, you have to open up your your lives and your lips to talk about me, to show me. And and as you do that, I'm going to rescue and redeem them. Now think about what the idea of baptism is in the Bible. So baptism is this beautiful declaration of the good news of Jesus. We're going to be baptizing next week. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the year when we do this. And think about the picture that you're seeing when we baptize. You have a person going under the water, right? That, that is symbolizing what happens at the moment of conversion. There is a part of us that dies with Jesus. That, that old part of us, that sinful, fleshly part of us, it dies in the death of Jesus. And, and that, now think about even the imagery of you're underwater, I mean, water is a washing sort of mechanism, isn't it? It's showing us that our sins have been forgiven. This is why some people, we hold them under them, we shake them a couple of times because it just takes a little bit more, right? But it's showing, it's showing a picture. It's painting a picture. You have died with Christ. Your sins have been forgiven in Jesus. And just think about that moment when they bust out of that water. What is the picture there? It's showing us the new life that Jesus gives this is where disciple making starts, in that moment of God rescuing us and redeeming us, right? Pictured in baptism. Now, with that, I, I love how we do baptisms at Stonegate. So, here's the stories you're gonna get to see next week. It's two stories in every baptism. Story number one that we get to see is at the person being baptized. And here's the story God saves. Aren't we grateful for that? God saves. He saves, he rescues. So you're getting to see that person as you're gonna to get to hear next week, them unpack a piece of how the Lord has done that and how that has worked itself out in their life. So you're getting, you're getting to hear that story. But there's another story that you're gonna to get to see next week. And that's that God saves through people. Like God's ordinary, normal means of rescuing human beings is by ordinary people like you and me. So we ask the person being baptized to think about who who, who has been one of the major sort of primary people in your life that God has used in your salvation? And why don't we bring them up and let them do the baptizing so we can see both of those two pictures, that God saves, yes, and that God saves through ordinary people like us. Now, let me just apply that in two ways really briefly. First, there's probably some people in here who you've become a Christian, but you've never been baptized, This is one of the first sort of acts of obedience in the Christian life is to publicly show the world through your baptism what has internally happened to you. So if that's you, we would love to celebrate with you next week. Let let us know. Like I'm going to be up here when we finish. Let me know. You can email Jeff Garner this week. Let him know. Please let us know so that we can celebrate next week with you. We would love to do that. But but here's the other way I want to apply it. When is the last time God has used you in the rescue of someone else? I want you to think about that for a moment. Maybe the last month, the last six months, the last year. We'll just be really, the last five years, last 10 years. I, I want you to wrestle with that for a moment. But When is the last time that God has done that? And maybe even now you could just pray for like an angst around that. Like, God, I want that. I don't want it to be like 20 years ago. I don't want it to be never. I want that to be like now. I I was reminded of a quote by a guy named uh, J.C. Ryle. He was an old Anglican bishop. and This statement has always stuck with me. He, He said this, We know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. Just think about your own life in that regard. We know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. One of the things I'm praying for us just as a church family this morning is that God would deepen our concern about that. I mean, if the Bible's true, and I think it is, right? We're all agreeing that it's true. There really is a heaven and hell and our eternities are spent in one place or the other. That, oh, that God would give us a deepened sense of angst, a deeper concern for. I mean, I I just wonder if a lot of us this morning, if this wouldn't be what the Lord is wanting from us. If this morning we don't just need to offer up our lack of concern to God. Just offering up our lack of concern and asking God to deal with that with us. Asking God to transfer into our heart his concern. That there would be an, a, a new breaking in our heart for our neighborhoods, our workplace, that the people we bump into at our kids' soccer games and this thing, and that, that there would be a deepened conviction, there would be a deepened concern for that. That w- would begin to move us into other people's lives. It would actually begin to move us to pray and intercede for people who are far from God. Open up our lives so that we could get to know people far from God. Talk about Jesus in ways that would be compelling and good so that, that they could come to know Jesus, right? That that would begin to happen in our life. So I'm just praying that, that, God, would you help us feel that deep down in our bones? God, would you put in us a new ache, a deeper concern? That This is the first step of disciple making. People have to actually meet Jesus. And now we get the second step of disciple making. You see it in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching. So part one is someone has to meet Jesus. Part two is that person who has met Jesus then gets about the work of growing up in Jesus. So, so how do we begin to co-labor with the Lord to that end? What does that look like? It looks like us investing our life into the, to another's journey. You, investing your life into another's journey. Me, investing my life into another's journey of becoming more like Jesus in every area of their life by the power of the Spirit. It looks like us being involved in people who don't know Jesus' life, the meeting Jesus, us being involved in people's life who do know Jesus, and us investing our life into their life so that by the power of the Spirit, they would become more like Jesus in every area of their life. You know, it's, it's funny for me to look back over the course of my life. I, I met Jesus when I was 13 years old. And, uh, and it's so interesting for me to, to look back. Oh, and by the way, when you think about the 13 year old version for you, that's a scary thing to think about, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I thought I knew so much not to know anything. And now I'm 38. And I think there's going to be a day where I'm 50 or 55, and I'm looking back over the 38-year-old version of me, and I'm going to be thinking the exact same thing. You thought you knew so much not to know a single thing, you know? And when I just think about how, how has the Lord brought more maturity over time into my life? What is the primary means that God has used from 13 to 38 to grow me into more maturity so that more of my life would look like Jesus? What has been the, the primary means of that? And, and just a simple word, you know what that's been? People. People. God has used people. When I think back to my parents, I don't know where I would be apart from parents who wanted to raise me up to know the Lord. But when I think about uh, my small group leaders back in, when I was 13, 14, 15 in a student ministry in a small rural church, you know, and every week they would open the Bible and they would teach it to me. Where would I be apart from that investment? Where would I be apart from Stuart Skelton? When I was in college, I was in a fraternity. I wasn't always a pastor, guys, all right? I was in a fraternity. And uh, and Stuart Skelton drove 45 minutes one way every Sunday to meet with me and four other guys. Where would I be apart from that? Where would I be apart from that sort of investment into my life from people? And I think part of, of just... Looking at your own life, when I look at my life, part of what it's showing us is that the best way for gospel truths to be transferred into another person is through relationships, through people. Like ordinary people like you, developing relationships with other people and transferring the truth of the gospel across those relationships. This is the normal way it works itself out. So just ask yourself the question now. Is there anyone in your life right now that you are intentionally transferring the truth of the gospel to? Anyone right now that you're doing that with? That that In a sense, you're taking responsibility for. That that you're saying, I am giving my life and, and I'm investing it into their life so that they can become more like Jesus in every area of their life through the power of the Spirit. So that they can love and know Jesus more. Who are those people that you're feeling and taking that sort of responsibility for? This is what the teaching component is showing us, that on the baptizing side, it's saying, here's part one. It's like you have to get your life in and among people who don't know Jesus so that you can live among them, befriend, open open up your mouth and talk about Jesus so that they can meet Jesus, that's part one. And then there's this part two of now what? Now we get to invest our life into their life so that they could grow up into all Jesus would have them be. Just lay that over your life. Is that you? Is that how your life is operating? Is that how it's working and moving? And is that how your life is organized? Then you get to the last participle. It's the word go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go, go, therefore. Now that word go is introducing us to intentionality. Now, you know, a lot of people when they preach this passage are right to point out that really the sense of that word go is like an as you are going. So it's not necessarily about your location, where you are. It's about your primary you know, occupation, what you're doing everywhere you are. So, so, and that's a, that's a right application. It's saying that let's, let's wake up and let's live with gospel intentionality. Every day of our life, every moment of our life, everywhere we are, let's live with intentionality to, to make disciples. But on the other hand, I think if that's all that we, we get out of that word go, we're missing something. I think there's another thing that that word go is showing us. That, that participle go carries the force of the verb, the main idea, make disciples. So, so there is a force with it. it it's talking, it, it's, it's getting us acquainted with the, the, uh, the posture of and the urgency of, of disciple making. Maybe you could think of it this way. When you wake up tomorrow, that word go is gonna remind you that when you wake up, when your eyes open, Jesus is gonna meet you right there. Aren't we grateful for that? Jesus is gonna meet us right there when your eyes open. And he's gonna say, I've sustained you over the last night. You woke up this morning. You didn't do anything to contribute to your sleep. I sustained your heart. I, I, I sustained you last night. And now your eyes are awake and Monday is here. And, and Jesus is gonna say, the, the, listen to the word go. That, that word go is me looking at you and saying, here is what your life is to be about today. It is you going and making disciples. Yes, you're going to go work a job. Yes, you're going to do this. Yes, you're going to do that. All of those are secondary issues behind this word go. It's go today and make disciples. It's the posture. It's the urgency of it. I think it's in a way, Jesus is showing us with that word go, you have nothing better to do with your life tomorrow than make disciples. You're not going to spend your time investing it in any other thing that's going to pay off more and be a better investment than you making disciples. It's Jesus saying t- today that word go. It's Jesus saying today, hey, I, I'm going to intersect your life with a person who's far from me, and I want to use you in that person's life. It's Jesus saying, hey, today I, I'm gonna I'm gonna intersect your life with a person who needs encouragement. That they're following me, but they're they're faint hearted, that they're weary. They need someone to invest their life into them, so they can become more like Jesus in every area of their life through the power of the Spirit. And I want to use you for that. You, ordinary you, I want to use you for that end. That's what that word go is is, is telling us. And don't miss the wonder of that. Is it not amazing that God would use people like us for something like that? People as frail as us, who fail as much as us, who sin as much as us, that God would use us for something as holy and as sacred and as glorious as disciple-making as people meeting and maturing in Jesus. I love how Chris Wright, in his book, uh, The Mission of God, he says this, the mission is God's. And that's true, isn't it? The mission is God's. But then he goes on to say, but the marvel is that he invites us to join him. And I love that. That is a marvel that we get to wake up tomorrow knowing Jesus is saying, "Hey, this is what I'm doing. Today I'm making disciples, and I would love for you to join me in that and let's do that together. Let's let's co-labor together as we make disciples. Jesus is asking you tomorrow, today, for the rest of your life to be a part of that, for me to be a part of that. Now just ask yourself the question, how is that meshing with your life? Is that what your life is about? Is that, what you're, is that what you're doing with your life? When you, when you think about the ambitions of your life, is that the ambition? I want to see Jesus make disciples through me. I want to be used to that end. I, I, want, to be, I want to be involved in what Jesus is doing in that way. That's the personal application. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about it in, in the wider kind of context of our church, the Great Commission and our church. How does the play out work in, in that regard? Now, in part, you know, when you're thinking about, okay, how do we as a church live in the Great Commission? I I think the most helpful way to see the answer to that is to look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows us how a church can then be a part of the Great Commission, not just individually as we scatter to all the places and spaces that we live, but corporately as we do our life together. So think about the layout of the book of Acts. Here's Acts chapter 1 through 7. Peter opens up his mouth and uh, in Acts 2 and he tells a very large crowd about Jesus that he faithfully did his role he opened up his mouth talked about Jesus and uh, and then Jesus was faithful to his role he saved and rescued a couple of thousand people in acts 2 and then in acts 2 the first uh, church is planted in Jerusalem So you have a person being faithful to their role. I'm opening up my mouth, talking about Jesus. And then a church is planted. They they assemble those new disciples into a local church. Now, when you look at the book of Acts, that is the pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts. Someone talks about Jesus, disciples are made, and churches are planted. Someone talks about Jesus, disciples are made, churches are planted. That's the pattern you see in the book of Acts. That is showing us how a church can then be about the work of the Great Commission. People open up their mouth, disciples are made, and churches are planted. Now, in Acts chapter 11, you have what may be the most important moment in the history of church planting. Christians from Jerusalem left Jerusalem and they went to Antioch, and there in Antioch, they planted a Jewish Gentile church. It's a multicultural church that they planted there. Now, here was what's interesting to track the history of those two churches over time, and here's what you find in these two churches. Jerusalem, on one hand, they grew continually inward over time. So it's this church better meet my preferences. The style better be exactly what I want. It better meet all of my sort of little qualifications and all my little things. So it grew inward over time, less about reaching a world and much more about sustaining just the thing that they had going on here. While on the other hand, the church in Antioch grew increasingly outward over time. So we are not going to be caught up in our preferences, our styles, our just fill in the blanks. We're gonna be caught up in what Jesus is doing in the world and that's making disciples. So we want to make disciples. We wanna see men and women meet Jesus. We wanna see men and women grow up in Jesus. We wanna be about the the work of multiplying ourselves as followers of Jesus, but not just as followers of Jesus. We wanna be about the work of multiplying ourselves as a church. So we wanna see church planters raise up out of our church. We wanna send church planters to places to plant churches so they can talk about Jesus, people can get rescued by Jesus, and a new church can be planted there, right? This is what Antioch was about. This is what they were doing. And in certain ways, I think it, it, the, the contrast between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, it, it unfolds before every church the options that we have, right? Here are the options. We can either grow increasingly inward like the church in Jerusalem, be all about our little things, our little wants, our little preferences, or we can become increasingly outward like the church in Antioch multiplication is what we're gonna be after. We wanna spend our days here for the glory. That's, that's what we're gonna be after. And Stonegate, don't we wanna be a church like Antioch? It's about the mission of God and multiplying in the kingdom of God. So you see it play out in Antioch like this in, in Acts chapter 13. These are gonna be up on the screen for you, the first couple of verses there. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, and that work is to go plant churches. So, set them apart, which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, this is the pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts. If you keep reading on in Acts, here's what you find. Paul would then, so he was sent out, he would go to a city, he would talk about Jesus, Jesus would save some people, and he would plant a church. Then he would raise up some local elders and pastors. He would put them in the church and then he would move on to the next city and do the same exact thing. And over time, you see those churches begin to send out planters who would preach Jesus. People would be rescued by Jesus. They would put them in a church, raise up some leaders and they'd go to the next place and do it again. That is is how Christianity grew. This is why you see such an explosive sort of growth in Christianity. It's welcome to the idea of church multiplication, right? Right? This is what you have happening in the book of Acts. Um, according to uh, the historian Rodney Stark, he said by, the, by AD 350, so roughly 300 years after uh, Jesus came, lived, and died for us. By the year AD 350, the Roman Empire, who was virtually, there were no Christians in it at the time of Jesus' you know, life. So was virtually no Christians. 300 years later, 51% of the Roman Empire were following Jesus. That that is explosive growth. Now, the question is, how did that happen? Here's the answer. People individually were living on the mission of God. They were opening up their mouths. They were befriending people who were far from God. They were talking about Jesus. Jesus was saving people. Then they would assemble them into a church and they would plant a church there. But, But there's a both and thing happening. Individually, people were living in the Great Commission. Churches corporately were living in the Great Commission. maybe you could think about it this way. If a follower of Jesus isn't reproducing themselves in the kingdom of God, there's a problem. There is unhealth in that person, individual person's life if they're not making disciples. In the exact same way, if a church isn't reproducing itself by planting other churches, if a church is not reproducing itself, there's a problem. Something's wrong inside the heart of the church when all we can think about is what's kind of within our our four walls. There's a problem there. Now, that kind of begs the question, why do more churches not plant churches? Why is that? And I think this is the simple answer to that. It hurts so bad to do it. Multiplication is costly. It hurts. Multiplication is always costly. I mean, think about the church in Antioch. God came to them and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas. If I'm the pastor, I'm like, Surely you didn't say Saul and Barnabas. I mean, they're the people we're kind of doing this thing around here. I mean, they're some of our most gifted people. I mean, these are the people that we really need to have here if we're going to have a healthy, good church in Antioch. But God said, no, no. I want you to send, uh, send Paul and Barnabas. Get some of your absolute best people. I want you to send those people. I mean, that, that is costly, isn't it? People don't want to send Paul's and Barnabas's. But that's exactly what multiplication requires. The, the reason we don't like to multiply, and by the way, it's on a personal level too. Why is it that we're not on the mission of God in our neighborhoods, talking to people who don't know Jesus, seeing people say, Jesus saved, why? Because it's costly. It's hard. It makes us look like idiots sometimes. We have to swallow our pride. We have to get off the couch. I mean, it just, it's hard to do. both both individually, personally, and corporately. Multiplication is hard. Now, let me just apply this in in two sort of ways as we finish up here. First, let me apply it in the context of home groups. So when you think of home groups, this is one of the ways that multiplication has to to work inside of a church family. It's one of the ways it has to go down. We are praying for the multiplication of home groups. We need more home groups with more qualified leaders in those groups. And when I think about, so I've led a home group or been a part of a home group for all eight years of being at Stonegate. And when I think about uh, the moments of planting home groups, multiplying home groups, do you know what has been involved in every one of those moments? Cost. Oh, it's been so hard. Like essentially we're sending Pauls and Barnabases, those guys, that's who we're sending. We're sending some of the, the best people in that group to go plant another group. And that is so hard. We're sending really good friends. We're sending people that we love. We're sending people who are carrying loads and bearing burdens in that group. And that's the very person that has to be sent if we want to multiply. But that's what makes multiplication so hard is we're sending our very best people. Now on the other side, it's not just, it's not just difficult because a group or a church is sending Paul and Barnabas. It's also difficult on Paul and Barnabas, right? I mean, if you read forward in the book of Acts, their life was really hard. So, so it's also hard on that side. Paul and Barnabas are leaving the cocoon of kind of love that they're in and, and care that they're in. And, and they're having to step out of that where it's risky and it's hard and you don't know how it's gonna work out and you don't know what you know, the next day is gonna hold. All of that, it's, it's hard if you're Paul and Barnabas. It's hard to send Paul and Barnabas and it's hard on the other side of that. When and let me just apply that side for just a moment. Some of us right now, we are the Paul and Barnabas people inside of our groups and we would just rather stay inside of our groups Group rather than stepping out of that group, right? We're, we're, we're more content to watch multiplication happen than to actually participate in multiplication. And I just wonder how many of us in the room need to hear that today. And part of the application could be, I want to begin taking steps to plan a group where I can begin to carry more burdens and more loads to the people of our church family where I can begin to do that. I think that would be one really good application is to think about that. And for all of us to begin to pray that more and more we can multiply, you know, more of our home groups. But secondly, let me apply it to church planting and how that has worked in our church's life. You know, when you think of church planting, church planting is the way that corporately, as a church, that the bride of Christ multiplies. Maybe you could think of it this way. How in the world are we sitting here in the year 2017 in Inside of a church family in a room like this, how is that even possible? The, the only answer to that is, for now, generations and generations, people have taken a step of faith for multiplication. They've gone to new places, different places, planted churches, that have then 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 planted, planted churches, that takes us all the way to this little church in Arlington called Tate Spring. This is going to be the next slide for you. If you, uh, if you go into that little triangle, right, where 287 and 20 meet, Tate Springs is right there in that triangle. And eventually, the multiplication of church planting made it all the way to Arlington, Texas. From Jerusalem, I mean, think about that, from Jerusalem all the way to Arlington, Texas. Multiplication happened, and this church was, was going. It, it was operating. A guy named Charles Clary was the pastor of it. And one day, a guy named Dwight McKissick showed up at Charles Clary's door and said, I really feel like God's called me to plant a church in Arlington. Would you help me? And Charles Clary looked at Dwight McKissick and said yes to that. We're going to help you. We're going to to send you. So come on in. We're going to help build you up, and we're going to send you out. And then in that moment, you have Cornerstone Church planted. They're in Arlington. kind of South Arlington right now. Then another guy showed up and said, man, I really feel a burden to plant a church here in the kind of the South Arlington, Mansfield area. And Charles Clary looked back at him and said, okay, we're in. Let's do that. And so you have another church planted. It's called South Oaks, right off two eighty seven as you're going north on on 287 through Mansfield. And then another guy showed up and said, man, I really feel called to plant a church up in Arlington. And would you help me? And Charles Carey looked at that guy and said, you know what, I'll I'll help you. We're, We're gonna bring you in and we're gonna send you out and help you get going. And Rush Creek was then planted in Arlington. And then another guy was on staff uh, at Tate Springs doing singles ministry stuff there and felt a burden to plant a church down in Mansfield. This is when Mansfield, there's nothing in Mansfield. Who would want to plant a church in Mansfield at that time? I I don't know, but he did. And Charles Clare looked at him and said, you know what, I'll help you plant down there. Let's do it. And at that moment, you had Walnut Ridge planted in Mansfield. Now, ironically, you put all those four churches together and and a year ago this last uh, Easter, there was over 10,000 people worshiping Jesus in those four churches planted out of that one little church called Tate Springs. That's multiplication for Jesus' sake. Now, I got to Walnut Ridge in uh, May of 2002 doing student ministry. And when I got there, it was like the moment that I realized, I guess every church was planted at some point. That had never dawned on me. I had never stopped to think that every church was at some point planted. And and kind of the assumption when I got there was, man, there's going to be a day where we send you, so you need to get ready. That day came in 2009, and they let me plant out of that student ministry with a group of about 20 or 30 adults down here in Midlothian. Now, let me just pause over that because you can't miss this. It is hard for me to describe how costly that moment was for Walnut Ridge. It was unbelievably costly for them. They were in a season of their church's life where I am convinced there is not, uh, I think it's a one out of a thousand pastors who would have said yes to it. And my pastor there was one that said yes to it. But it was a costly, costly moment. It took them several years to kind of recover from that moment. It was a really hard thing for them. But they said yes, and in that moment, Stonegate was planted back in 2009. Now, let me just give you some of the history of the last eight years for Stonegate. Over the last eight years... We've had, and this is gonna be the next slide for you, the next thing you can see there. We've been able to, to help funding and support and getting some churches off the ground. Jim Essien, at the Paradox Church in Fort Worth. Ross Appleton, Christ Community Church in Denton, Texas. Jeremy Pace, Christ City Church in East Dallas. Ben Conley, City Church in Fort Worth. Jeff Lawrence, Redemption Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Jason Brewer, Mercy Church in Frisco. John Mur- uh, Murphy, Veritas Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Just doing so well, killing it out there in North Carolina. Aaron Fair in Southeast Asia, is trying to plant a church in a really difficult context. Pastor Sudhakar in Hyderabad, India. William Subash in Bangalore, India. Dustin Neely, Refuge Church in Franklin, Tennessee. Jason Hatch, Redeemer Midland in Midland, Texas. They're doing so great. They're a year and a half old, just doing so great out in Midland. Dan Romer in Bath, England. Micah Caswell, Redeemer Denton in Denton, Texas. Raphael is is planting City Church in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Josh Elsom is at Soma uh, Church down in Waxahachie. Ryan Keeney is at Grace Church in in Benbrook, uh, Texas. That's 17 churches right there that I just read through that we have been able to play a significant part in helping them get up and off the ground. 17 of those. Now, here's one other quick thing to note, uh, the next uh, picture. Some of those churches are already planting daughter churches. So Stonegate, do you know what you are as an eight-year-old church, a granddad? You're a granddad. We're already seeing that sort of multiplication work out to the next level. Now, we've also been able to bring in some guys who have been very internal to us as church planting residents that have spent time with us. We had deep, deep investment into them that we have been able to send out. The first one was a guy named Casey Maddox. He is planted in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. They're doing really well. They're about three years in, doing really well right now. Another guy is Brad Marvin at Restore Church up in Arlington, Texas. They, lost, or they launched about a year and a half ago and they're plowing along, doing good work. And then Devin Valentine, we sent out about a year ago up into Cedar Hill to plant a church. And I just want you to look at that, church family. That is what God has used you to be a part of doing. God has used you for that. This church family to, to do that. Now, just dream with me for a second as we think about the next 30 or 40 years of our church's life. You know, it's, uh, the first eight years are not the easiest time to plant churches. I think it can actually get easier in many ways as we move down the road. So let's just, let's just think in the next 30 or 40 years, what if, what if the Lord might give us a chance to plant 100 churches over the next 30 or 40 years? And what if, what if just the average sort of size of those congregations and those churches was, let's just say 400. That would be 40,000 men and women, aunts and uncles, neighbors, little boys and little girls who've met Jesus and are growing up in Jesus. 40,000. Now, maybe you're the person that's saying right now, gosh, there's no way, no way God could do that. No, no. would would God really use us for something like that? I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I'm willing to push all of my chips in and I'm willing to co-labor with Jesus. I'm willing to sacrifice with Jesus and I'm willing to give my life to find out. And church family, I'm looking at you on a personal level and a corporate level and saying, I'm looking at you and asking, will you push your chips in? Will you push your life in? Will you push your priorities in so that we can find out together? May we as a church live under the great commission, amen? May we be a place both personally and corporately that are seeing disciples made for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Maybe you're here this morning and the next step of obedience for you is to actually step across the line of faith. Like it's that first sort of decisive moment in the life of a disciple of Jesus Where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Where you hold up your life to God and you say, I am trusting in Jesus to make me right with you. Maybe that is the next step of obedience for you this morning. That you need to meet Jesus, surrender to Jesus, give your life to Jesus this morning. And if that's you, we're going to have some of our pastors and elders and prayer team over at our prayer table right over there in the back of the room. If that's you, we would love to know that and to begin that journey with you this morning. For others, it is us holding up our life again today and receiving from the Lord his desire for us to make disciples. To make disciples. To conform our life to that. So what would be maybe that next step of obedience for you? Where is it that God would want you to take that that next step today? Oh, Father, would you please clarify that for us today? God, I, I pray that there would be a renewed and deepened sense that you are the missionary God of the scriptures. And, Father, I pray that you would give your missionary heart into us. God, that you would move it to us. And, God, we would receive with with just a fresh, open heart today the call to be disciple makers. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us. We know that in the power of our flesh, it, it will not happen. Oh, God, would you empower this in our church? Would you do this in our church? God, would you make us a church willing to pay the high cost of multiplication, both personally and corporately? Jesus, we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.